0: Yay, thumbs up. <laughs> there are so many different ways that I get to connect with what's going on here at Community of Grace. We love sharing the space with the choir. And for those of you who are annoyed from time to time that we disrupt things, or I walked in this morning and, and um, they're singing. They're all sitting, um, getting ready to warm up, and they're sitting in front of our classroom tables. <laughs> looks like really good students. If you'd ever like to come and audit a class, you are so, so welcome. And and I'm overjoyed that I get to work with Pastor Angie and with Jeff Montgomery on a regular basis. It is so fun for us to still be connected with Dr. Steve Turnbull, who comes and teaches. He still teaches our scripture practicum class from a distance. And it's good to be a part of getting to bring the word of God to you. It's good to be a part of this um series that you're doing called Trust Issues. And here's why. We all have them. We all have trust issues, particularly when we're in seasons of change. And you are in a season of change. My husband and I are in a season of change presently. We just left our community of 34 years and moved up Highway 94, through 252 and moved to Brooklyn Park, and let me tell you, I can't find a thing in this house. (laughs) It is a season of change for us. And Pastor Angie reminded you a couple of weeks ago when she spoke of Moses, that Moses was going through a season of change and had trust issues. He had character issues too, by the way. And then Kevin McClure came, and he talked about Abraham and how Abraham had been called by God to do something that was so unimaginable that he would become the father of many nations, this man who had no children. You can imagine that that was difficult for him to trust the Lord. And he did vacillate, and don't we all, from time to time. And Last week, Eric Hallstrand was here, and he talked about when God was leading Israel up to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army was chasing them, and now they were caught with Pharaoh's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And the Lord said the most impossible thing, stand still and move. When the Lord speaks to us in ways that we cannot quite imagine, how is that going to work? We can have trust issues. And now we've come to this very familiar but sometimes unwelcome passage of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments has been chronically seen as a list of do's and don'ts. That God is trying to control our lives, and if we step out of line, there's going to be an angry finger waiting to wag at us. Or there's going to be a judgmental sneer that comes from the heavenlies. Or there's going to be a from our neighbors around us. The dreaded Ten Commandments have been fought all across this nation, whether they belong in our courtrooms, in our classrooms, in our town squares, should they be hung so that all of us would remember, or lest we do not cross the line. Some say, however, that the Ten Commandments are archaic. They've been brought to us by a demanding, controlling, and perhaps fictitious God. Perhaps the Ten Commandments were concocted by human beings that were trying to keep us all in line, trying to create a society that would be moving in the same direction, trying to create a society where we would have the rules that kept us in order, perhaps even like robots, or perhaps limiting our freedom and taking away our fun. But friends, this is not at all God's heart behind the Ten Commandments. This is not God's intention in how you and I or Israel should live. And I hope that what we're going to see as we delve into this very familiar passage again today is that as God was giving these commandments of how they get to live, he was doing something that was completely countercultural. He was doing something that was revolutionary. He was doing something that was going to show them how to be a people unlike a people that they had ever been before. There's a fabulous book called The Rise of Christianity. It was written by a man, his name is Rodney Stark, and Rodney Stark is an anthropologist who was an atheist. And he started out this anthropological study of how on earth could this religion, this thing called Christianity, have become such a worldwide movement when God doesn't even exist. And so, setting aside all of the miracles that are in Scripture, he studied throughout history, like a good anthropologist should. He studied throughout history how Christians behaved. And here's what he found. He found that over and over and over again, Christians were countercultural. Over and over and over again, Christians showed value for those who were different than them. Christians cared for the people who were around them, their neighbors, those who were sick, those were her- who were in need. Christians showed a unique hospitality that exceeded what the culture and the society may have mandated. Consistently, for example, if the bu- when the bubonic plague hit, if it came to a, f- to a home, the family members would tend to leave their loved one and head for the hills because they were going to be next. And people were being slaughtered in groves by this plague. Christians. They stayed. They stayed at the risk of their own lives. They stayed and they cared for these people. And if some of them would live, they would say, tell me about your God. I have never experienced this kind of care, this kind of honor, this kind of dignity, this kind of love, this kind of generosity. Tell me about your God. And he began to realize that the movement of Christianity, now remember, he still was an atheist, the movement of Christianity was spread far and wide throughout all of the world because we were known by our love. By the end of his study, he came to realize that we could only love in this way if there is a loving God. A loving God who walks behind, beside us. A loving God who cares for us as we care for other people. A loving God who provides and is generous. A loving God who sees us, as Anna said this morning. A loving God who wants to know, with, know us and wants to be with us. And by the end of his study, he came to know this loving God for himself. This is the heart behind the Ten Commandments. But if we backtrack a little bit and go back into the story in Exodus chapter 20 that was read for us this morning, let's do a little bit of reminder of where was Israel when they were about to experience this loving God. Do you remember, they were living as slaves. For almost 500 years, they had been living in Egypt. They had come to Egypt because Joseph, who was second in command to Pharaoh, Joseph was, had been hoarding away crops, grain, because he had been told by the Lord that there was going to be a famine. And Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery several decades earlier, were surprised when they came to e- Egypt to buy grain to find their snotty Noah's little brother second in command. But Joseph, a person of character, integrity, honesty, and great work ethic, met his brothers, and extended to them the love and the kindness, the generosity that he had experienced from the Lord God. He forgave them, and he cared for them. And he sent them home to bring their father, Jacob, and to bring all of their households. Well, as life has it, Joseph died, their father Jacob died, Pharaoh died, and over the course of time, people forgot that these Hebrews, these Israelites, were a special people. Now, they were an odd people, too. They didn't fit inside the culture. They had different practices, but they had been a special people. Egypt forgot. And so the Pharaoh, who's also called the sun god, by the way, The sun god is the god over all the other gods in this pantheistic society. Pharaoh was irritated with this strange and odd people group. They were annoying and a nuisance to him. And so he decided that he would enslave them all because at least they were strong. And so he used them to work day and night in the most horrific of circumstances their fingers to the bone, with no honor, no dignity, no respect. Slaves. And they began to cry out to the Lord God, and the Lord heard them. And the Lord sent Moses to deliver them. These 10 Commandments, my friends, are a loving God's way of introducing himself and how He wants us to live with him and with ourselves and with one another. Israel had no context for this kind of God. They had heard stories in the past of how God had been with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But seriously, hundreds of years as slaves, I can forget what God has done in a couple of weeks. Hundreds of years as slaves. They had forgotten and they had not experienced this kind of God for themselves. They had only experienced the sun God who was harsh, who was cruel, who could have cared less about who they were or what they can do unless they were providing something for him. And he was milking them Trying to get every ounce of productivity that he could get out of them. That's all that they were good for. They were a commodity to him. And so when the Lord God shows up and says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, you shall have no other gods like me. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not like that God that you left behind. I'm not like that God who enslaved you. I'm the God who freed you. I'm not like that God who is only satisfied with what you can give to him, what you can create for him. He doesn't care about you. I'm not like that God. I am the God who has come to be with you. I am the God who wants a relationship with you. I am the God who wants to provide for you. And you should have no other gods before me. I've had some other gods before the Lord God. I'm a recovered addict. Abstinence started for me in 1988. I call that a small g-god. Anything that is that has authority or control over our lives, whether we give it that power or whether it is somehow strangely usurped like an addiction. I call it a small g-god, something that I have given more authority or more um, energy to than the Lord God. And my addiction was a small g-god for me. And when I started recovery in 1988, I became very aware that this small-g God had controlled my life to such an extent that I couldn't even find the true God anymore. I had wandered so far away that it was hard for me to even hear the voice of the Lord or to imagine that I would be loved enough, valued enough, cared for enough, redeemed enough to be in the presence of this loving God. And slowly, as I found my way back, slowly as I would dare to draw closer and closer and give the Lord access to come closer and closer to me, I realized that I'd been duped. This thing that had harassed me and controlled me and manipulated me for so long, that was my slave master. The one true God had been caring for me, calling out for me, waiting for me, trying to bring me back all this time. And it was the Lord who had been with me. It was the Lord who cared for me. It was the Lord who loves me. And I fell on my knees, and I said, I will have no other gods before you. When the Lord God says in the second commandment, do not make an idol to worship. Do you know what he's saying? You won't need an idol. You won't need something else that you can look at that is supposed to represent me because I am going to be with you. And if you read the rest of the story in Exodus, you'll see that God was consistently with them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and he would come down into the tabernacle when they stopped. And you could see the glory of the Lord reverberating from the tabernacle. He was with them. They did not need an idol. When the Lord says, don't use my name in vain, do you know what he's talking about? Can you imagine what they said about Pharaoh? Can you imagine the conversations under their kerosene lanterns as their fingers were bleeding? as their feet were aching, as their knees were calloused. Can you imagine what they would have said about that sun god? Terrible things. Of course they didn't like him. Of course they detested him. They had grown accustomed to saying terrible things about a god. But this god is different. He's holy. The word holy actually means completely other than, unlike anything else. The word holy means set apart. And when the Lord says to us, You be holy as I am holy, that is what He is saying. You be set apart. You be completely other than. You be like the people that took care of those who had bubonic plague while their family members headed for the hills to trying to save their own lives. You be different. I'm different. Don't use my name in vain. Get to know me. My son Tom, um, when he was a young child, (laughs) when he was a young child, um, he had an, an encounter with my brother. My brother Nevin was visiting us, and my son Tom was about three years old. And uh, Tom was being the typical three-year-old. He was being loud and rambunctious, and he was playing, and he was running around the house, and I was busy taking care of other things, and I was letting my three-year-old be a three-year-old. He wasn't being naughty, he was just being a boy, loud, rambunctious. And my brother decided that he was irritated with that, and um, he'd had enough. So he stomped off to wherever Tom was, and he said, you stop making this noise, you stop running in this house. And my son Tom looked up at him and he said, You're not the boss of me. (laughs) And my brother, who has a temper anyway, just exploded in a fit of rage. I am too the boss of you. I'm your uncle and you will respect me. I had to go into the other room and go, You know what, Nevin, Um, actually, you're not the boss of Tom. And Tom doesn't actually even know you. We live in the city, and we have taught our children to not trust anybody unless we say they're trustworthy. And you haven't actually made that list yet because you haven't been around enough. You are not the boss of him. He needs to learn that you are trustworthy. He needs to learn that you are for him and that you want to be a part of his life. This is what God was doing. He was saying, I'm not here to be the boss of you but I am here to be your Lord. And over the course of time, you will come to know and to experience that this is the kind of God I am. So enter Sabbath, enter the life of Sabbath. The fourth commandment, that you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, was an extraordinary concept for Israel. Extraordinary. Because it was a time of rest. And I'm not talking about sleep. I'm talking about rest. It was an opportunity for them to rest. And to be with God and to be with one another. And look at the text. Look at what it says. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh, that is the Sabbath to the Lord and on it you shall not do any work. Listen to this. Neither your son or your daughter, your manservant or your maidservant, your animals, or the alien who is within your gates. None of you are to work. Do you know what this is? Well, for a slave, it's unfathomable. But for a people, this is a level playing field. Everybody rests. The king rests. The lowest servant rests. The animals rest. The shop owners rest. The restaurant servers rest. Everybody rests. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember, I am, may be old enough to remember that there was a time in this country where everything was closed on Sundays. The malls were closed. The grocery stores were closed, the gas stations were closed, the hardware stores were closed. If you needed a hammer or some nails to finish a weekend project, you got nothing. They were closed. This is not what the Lord is saying. He's not saying, force everybody else to do this. He's saying, no, be a people who learn how to rest and how to remember who practice week in and week out to be different, to be countercultural, to be revolutionary. Be the people who can look at somebody different than you, somebody who serves in a different role than you do in society, somebody who lives in a different neighborhood, somebody who cleans your yard or serves you on Saturdays in the grocery store and say, I see you, you're important, you're significant, I value you. The Sabbath, a season, a day of rest, is to give value, honor, and dignity to every other person. It wasn't about forced naps, or forced, which my parents did to me, by the way, or forced um, staying home, forced closing your pocketbooks, forced no fun, it was about rest, real rest, being together, not dependent on what somebody else could do for you because you are not a commodity, you are a human being and you are valued and you are worth being loved. Now all of the other commandments make sense, that we would not steal, that we would not commit adultery, that we would not lust after one another. All of these things make sense when you see that the fourth commandment is about being together in relationship. As God wanted to be with the Israelites, God wants to be with us. As God wants to be with us, God wants us to be with others. As God sees you, God wants you to see other, others. Do you see what good news this is and this good commandment? So how do we do this as people? In the 21st century, how do we do this? as lovers of God. How do we do this as disciples of Jesus Christ who want to make a difference? Well, for one thing, we realize that we can't. You and I can't do this on our own strength. This is why Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us, to convict us, to remind us of the words that Jesus has spoken. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to be able to live like this. Practice every day. I don't know about you, but I am challenged by the concept of rest. And I need to stop every day, just take a couple deep breaths. My doctor tells me that if I stop and breathe deeply and count to 10, and then breathe out and count to 10, if I just do that three to five times times a day, my body will start to engage more in rest. Become aware of your own internal judgments or issues that you might have with people who are different than you. Can you look at that person and give them dignity? Give them respect? Can you look at somebody who's different from you or somebody that you don't know or maybe somebody who doesn't like you and say, I see you, you're important. Practice those things, and become aware of your own internal judgments. Practice seeing and caring for the people that are right around you, your neighbors, person who's broken down on the side of the road, person who is looking for a handout. I see you, I care about you, I value you practice asking forgiveness and extending forgiveness. People that you have perhaps misjudged, for people that you have perhaps been unkind to, practice forgiveness. And then remind those that are around you people who are in your home, the people that you bump up into, the people that you're sitting in the pew with, remind them of their own significance. It's good to be reminded. We forget. We know our own issues, and we can forget that we are actually a people. You and I are people that the Lord wants to come and be with. And sometimes because we forget that for ourselves, it's hard to remember that for others. Remind one another and then pray. Holy Spirit, I cannot do this on my own. Holy Spirit, I do not think like God without you thinking in and through me, without you training my thoughts. Holy Spirit, I need you to move and to minister and to remind and to empower. I need you to live this good life news of these good commandments, that we will be seen as the God who wants to be with us. We will be seen as people of God who want to be with others. Lord, do this in us. For Jesus' sake, for your glory, for the spreading of your kingdom throughout this world, do this in us and through us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. (목소리도) MBC 뉴스 박진주입니다. MBC